Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. We're back again now with Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States to continue our series on the book of Revelation. And uh, gosh, Alistair, we've made it up to chapter 16. We're looking today at the, or this time, at the seven bowls. Now, uh, welcome. Thank you. Now, we've had seven seals, seven trumpets, as well as a host of other sevens. I've given up counting the number of se- numbers of sevens. And now we've got seven bowls. What is the significance of the number seven, and why do we have seven bowls? Well, if people don't realize the significance of the number seven, I would recommend that they actually start listening to this series again, because we've discussed the significance of the number seven in practically every single one of the episodes. I'm sorry number about that. Number seven is... A fundamental number in scripture. We are introduced to the significance of that number in the first two chapters of the Bible, in the story of creation. There are seven days of creation, and throughout scripture, that number has a significance associated with Sabbath, with rest, with the measure of the week, and it gets connected with other numbers. For instance, the calendar of Israel is structured around sevens in places like Leviticus chapter 23 and 25. And in the book of Revelation, the number seven has a peculiar significance. In practically every chapter, there's some use of the number seven for symbolic purposes. Through the book, we've seen a series of cycles, this being the third major cycle of judgments, one connected with the opening of the seals, the second with the blowing of the trumpets, and now we have the seven bowls that get poured out. And so this connects with earlier detail details that we've had concerning sevens, seven lampstands, seven churches, seven angels, seven stars, all of these things that we've seen from the beginning of the book. The new creation is coming, it's wrapping up the old creation, and we can see this in all of the um, recurrence of of, um, creation symbolism, Mm. particularly connected with the number seven. Yes. Now, what are the seven bowls? What's in them? And where do they come from? The seven bowls come from heaven, and they are sent by the angels. And we can think about the seven bowls in connection, perhaps, with the blood of the saints that's being poured out, and also with fire from the altar. This is a judgment that is as a result of the blood that these people have brought upon themselves by their treatment of the people of God. Now, how are the bowls linked with the last of the four horsemen? Yes, um, Earlier on, we saw the horsemen sent forth, and there are ways in which we can map the horsemen onto later events. Throughout the list of these um, occurrences as we go through the book of Revelation, there are ways that we can see things anticipating the future or ways that we can see cycles repeating themselves. For instance, the cycle here is very closely mapped onto the cycle of the seven trumpets, Um, And the four horsemen, again, we could see this as the fourth stage within that. The four horsemen, of course, were connected in their turn with the four living creatures. But all of this is um, the inner logic of the events of Revelation. Yes. Now, what's the significance of the fact that this first bowl is poured on the land? Because the land has significance in Revelation, doesn't it? Yes. When we talk about of the difference between land and sea, the land can typically represent the land of Israel as distinct from the Sea of the Gentiles. And we see this sort of symbolism already in places like the book of Jonah. As Jonah leaves the land, goes to sea, he's dealing with the Gentiles. Now, if he were just going up to Nineveh, um, he could do so 
on the land, but the whole presentation of the story in terms of a sea journey highlights the fact that within biblical symbolism, the nations are the sea. Israel is the land that's been brought up out of the sea. In places like Daniel chapter 7, the sea beasts are Gentile empires. Even though they're connected to Israel by land, they are symbolically sea creatures. Now, the land is therefore representing Israel. It's a particular judgment upon um, the nation and its temple and other aspects of its worship and life. Mm. What sort of judgment does the first bowl bring and why? So the description of the judgments in um, Revelation chapter 16 are, in contrast to some of the earlier descriptions we've had in the book, very terse. We don't have the extended descriptions that we have of um, the certainly of the opening of the seals and the bowls. The list here is completed within one chapter and there's no extended time given to the final two in particular. The, the judgment of the first bowl is um, connected with those who worship the beast and its image. And so the worshipping of the beast and its image is connected with the sea beast and its relationship with the land beast or the false prophet, as we'll see it elsewhere. The sea beast sets up the land beast as his false image and the sores come upon um, the worshippers of that. Now, we might also observe here that as in a number of the other bowls, there are clear allusions back to the story of Exodus here. The plagues are recurring in things like the sores, in the poisoning of the rivers, the turning of the waters into blood. We can think also of the blotting out of the sun. Um, all of these sorts of details are plague details and also the um, demonic frogs that we have later on. All of this is recalling those stories. I think you've probably already answered my next question. Who or what is the sea? Uh, that the second bowl is poured out on. Presumably then this may be a Gentile judgment or a judgment on Gentile territories and persons. Yes, I think so. Um, I think this is a particular judgment upon the Gentile sea, and this would be the realm in which the diaspora was located as well. So this is not just upon Gentiles, it's upon um, Jews who um, live within that realm. Um, so God-fearers and also the people of the diaspora are are operating within that location. Now, before there would be sources of life, we can think about the way that the sea was hospitable to the diaspora and also to God-fearers. But now that time is over and um, the sea, the life of the sea is, is poisoned. Yeah, what's the significance of the sea turning to blood here? Is there perhaps an allusion back to the plagues of Exodus? I think so. We might also notice that there are allusions to the plagues in the first of Jesus' signs in the book of John chapter 2. Um, but there's a sort of inversion of it there, where the water is turned not to blood, but to wine. So it's again turned to a red substance, but now to a form of blessing. In this case, the water is turned to blood, which is not a positive sign. And there it's bringing up the sin of Egypt. They had cast the baby boys into the Nile. Now the Nile turns to blood in memorial of their crime. And something similar is here. The blood of the water is also connected to the persecution of the people of God. And their blood, as it were, 
being brought to the surface. Yes, I mean, I think you very much see John and Revelation as a sort of mirror image, don't you, and, and read them together. I think it works too. Fascinating. Now, uh, the third bowl, uh, number three, is the judgment of the third bowl linked to the temple and its apostasy? The connection with the river and springs, we might think about the river and springs as land water. And so in that respect, it would seem to refer not to the sources of life within the sea, but to the um, land waters of the temple and synagogues. We can think of the earlier um, events, the trumpets onto which some of these can be mapped. And there it was wormwood and the poisoning of the waters in that case, land waters, the waters of the temple. Again, reflecting upon imagery within scripture, the temple is a source of living water in Ezekiel. We can see something similar in other places within John's writing, particularly in his gospel in chapter four and in chapter seven, and then also perhaps in the war flowing from Christ's side. And some of the allusions back to Ezekiel chapter 47 in John chapter 21. And so the rivers and springs being um, poisoned in this way is blood spilling into habitable areas and forms sources of life within that region um, and poisoning them too. Now, who's the angel Who's the angel of the waters and what does he say? The angel of the waters is someone who is connected with the, the sources of life that we've discussed in the second and third, um, particularly with the third, the waters of the land. We can also think about the angel of the waters as... Um, connected with some of the themes that um, Christ discusses in Matthew chapter 23 with his calling out of woes upon the scribes and Pharisees and Jerusalem and its temple. He's declaring the vindication of the saints and prophets who have been killed. Think of Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 23, from the blood of righteous Abel to Zechariah, who was slain between um, the temple and the, the altar. There is a time of reckoning and it's the full measure of the judgment upon all the martyred saints and prophets before them. And that giving of blood to drink is a theme that we'll see in the chapter that follows with the harlot drinking the blood. So this is a, a moment of reckoning that the angel is declaring. The fourth, the fourth bowl. Uh, what does the fourth angel do? Well, the fourth angel, angel is connected with the I mean, it's a judgment of the heavens. We might also perhaps reflect upon the ways in which there are associations with the various days. The fourth bowl connected with the sun um, connects with the fourth day of creation on which the sun was created. And so land waters connected with the third day. That's the day on which the land was created. The sea um, connected with the second day. The first day, not such a tight match, but um, the judgment upon the sun leads to the sun scorching people with fire. We might actually think back to something like the end of the book of Jonah here. In Jonah chapter 4, where the sun is scorching Jonah, and he's preserved from that scorching by the growing of the gourd, and then that gourd is brought down by the worm within it. It seems to me that that thing's a sort of enacted parable of the um, events of the rise of the power of Assyria, and then the removal of Assyria as a power, and then the scorching sun of Babylonia. And it seems to me that something similar is going on here. The scorching power of Rome is about to know, be known within the land. 
there has been darkness or there has been um, a weakening of the sun's power, but now it's going to come out in full strength and it's going to scorch life within Israel. Now, why does the fifth angel pour out his bowl on the throne of the beast? And what is the throne of the beast anyway? The beast, of course, is connected with the sea. And we thought about the beast as perhaps a figure of the Roman Empire, particularly in its neuronic iteration. The beast here, it seems to me, is then the sea beast. And the judgment is referring to the period of time after Nero's suicide, Rome being struck with civil war, and the year of the four emperors. And this is a period in which the his kingdom is thrown into darkness. So we've had the scorching heat of the sun in um, the land in the preceding bowl. Now there's a judgment upon the realm of the beast as his throne is um, judged. He is removed, Nero is removed by his suicide, and then Rome is cast into a certain sort of darkness. Its power is diminished and it's um, in disarray and chaos. Now, what happens with the sixth bowl? Yes, the sixth bowl. We can maybe think back to Romans chapter nine, or Revelation chapter 9, which talked about the sixth angel and his trumpet, talking about the angels that were bound at the river Euphrates, and they're waiting for their right time to be released. They're described as a great army there. And here, um, there's going to be the preparation of the way for the, that army to come forth and to lead to a great conflict. The identity of the army is also a matter of speculation. Um, perhaps it's to be seen as um, Jesus himself in judgment. We'll later have that army coming upon the city in the chapters um, 18 and 19, for instance. And so Christ coming from the dawn of the sun, from the east, and coming with judgment and destruction, the water of the boundary being removed so that this invasion force can come into the land. Not a literal invasion force, but um, not a literal description of invasion force from the other side of that river, but Christ coming with his power upon the land, and that might be a reference to it. Um, we might yeah. also think about images and prophecy in places like Isaiah, um, where there are references to the water's being dried up so that there will be a way made for Cyrus and his forces to prepare the way from the east for the people of God to return. So the beast, the dragon and the false prophet could be going to war with the kings of the Greco-Roman world then? Yeah, well, we could see this as this is Christ's invasion force about mm. to come. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why is the Euphrates mentioned? What's the significance of the Euphrates? The Euphrates, of course, was mentioned back in chapter 9 release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. The four angels could be seen as messengers of judgment. And so their army is an army of judgment from the east, from the realm of the rising of the sun. And that would be my suspicion. In what ways is this all framed as a new exodus? Yes, it's a water crossing. Um, mm. It's a water crossing following a series of plagues um, so we've got allusions to so many of the, the plagues already. We've got um, the references to the water turning to blood, the boils. We've got the darkening of the sun um, and other things like that. But now we have the demonic frogs, which are added to that list. And then the crossing of the waters that are dried up again 
it seems that this is all within an Exodus framing and following on from all the Exodus illusions before, for instance, the group singing the Song of Moses back in chapter 15. All of this is framed within an Exodus image. What's the significance of the frog demons? I'm reminded again of the frogs in the in the plagues in, in Exodus. Yes. Uh, so the frogs are unclean animals. They're demonic spirits. And they're connected with a sort of proliferation of evil things. They're spreading out like vermin. And they they have a certain sort of dominion that's given to them. They're going to the kings of the whole world. And there is a preparation for battle here, um, a preparation where two forces are brought into collision. So on the one hand, there's assembling of the kings of the whole world. On the other hand, there's this um, preparing of the force that's coming across the river Euphrates, the force of judgment connected with the four angels. And so it seems to me that the demonic spirits could be connected with other occasions in Scripture, not least at the beginning of the Gospels, where there is a, an advent of demonic power at the time when spiritual divine forces come on the scene. And so there's spiritual conflict really occurring. We might think about the way that Satan um, tempts Christ in the wilderness. He comes on the scene at the beginning of Christ's ministry. And also, wherever Jesus goes, he meets with people who are afflicted with demons. He meets with people who need to be exorcised in synagogues. So it seems that this is similar again to the story of Saul and David. As David is anointed by the Holy Spirit, Saul is afflicted by a demonic spirit or an evil spirit. And David has to conflict with that. Now here there's something similar taking place. Okay, all that being so, uh, we come to this, the Battle of Armageddon, and there have been so many movies made about this and so much speculation. What is the Battle of Armageddon? Do we know? And what's the importance of Megiddo in the Old Testament anyway? Yes, um, a lot depends upon how we translate this and what illusions we see also taking place. And we might think about the way that Megiddo was the place that King Josiah was killed by the Egyptians in battle. And this was really the event that heralded the end of the southern kingdom after the death of Josiah. And his sons took on the throne from him, and it was just all downhill from there. The kingdom and languished and eventually became puppets, a puppet state of um, powers in the north and south. And then um, it was taken to exile. So it seems to me that it could be referring in part to that. We could also think about the way that um, Megiddo is a great place associated with mourning in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 8 to 11. Um, all the inhabitants are gathering in mourning um, over the house of David. And it seems that uh, over the one who has been pierced, the house of David is gathering together in mourning. And so it seems it might be an allusion to the, those sorts of things. The interesting feature is the mountain. There is no mountain at Armageddon, at, at Megiddo. So you've got the mountain connected with a place that does not have a mountain. Or another possibility is something that Meredith Klein and others have pointed out, that it might be a reference to the mountain of assembly, um, a symbolic mountain that we have referenced in places like Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 to 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit 
on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And so it might be a reference to the Mountain of Assembly as well. And so all this is being set up really as the end of the old world, I suppose, the end of the old creation. Yes, the Great Showdown is about to occur. <laughs> the, the Great um, Showdown, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, how does the seventh bowl end the extended sequence of the four horsemen? Yes, if we go back a few chapters, we've got similarities with the description of the seventh bowl and the descriptions of the final blowing of the trumpet, for instance. Then God's heaven, God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashings of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Um, it seems that something similar is taking place here. Again, there's a declaration of the cycle being finished, and this is a judgment upon the city and the cities of the nations taking place. The cities, the great city, um, seems to be, to me, a reference to Jerusalem and the cities of the nation, nations, the cities of the sea. And so the opposition here is not between the greatest power of the day, um, militarily and politically, which would be Rome, but between covenantal um, entities. So Jerusalem is the great city covenantally. Um, it's the center of the old world order. It's the place where the Lord has established his covenant with his people. It's the place of the temple and the surrounding world is the sea. And so you've got the land sea opposition taking place here, not primarily the opposition between nations of varying political power. What actually happens to Jerusalem here? It's split into three parts. Now, we might think back to Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, and the symbolic action that Ezekiel had to perform there, where he had to divide parts of his beard. Um, the third, burn in fire, and then the third, strike with the sword, and then the third, scatter to the wind. The three parts of the city might be, again, the three divisions of the city into three different fates received by the people within it and hmm. um, we might also on those lines think about the way that jerusalem in the period of its collapse during the civil war was just wrought by extreme factionalism so hmm. it's divided into parts and their rival factions in conflict with each other yeah why do we have um, more flashes of lightning rumblings thunder and a great earthquake what's all that about well we might descriptions of an earthquake in Zechariah chapter 14. Um, we might think about the way that that creates a new world order at the end of that apocalyptic vision. We might also think about this as a complete shakeup of the old order. Things are going to be shaken and only those things that will endure will remain. This is a sort of judgment of the old order and things are being thrown into chaos. It's a cracking up of the system. We might think also of some of the images of judgment upon cities and lands in the Old Testament prophets, which ex use certain of these sorts of images. Uh, what's the significance of the hailstones, Alistair? The hailstones, again, think back to the plagues. Ah, yes, hailstones yes. mixed with fire. Mm -hmm. um, we might think of that image as one of the plague images. Besides that, we might think of the great if we're going to take this in the sort of reference to something that relates to literal events, 
We could also think about the great stones of that exact weight that were cast into Jerusalem by the Romans besieging the city. Mm. Yes, indeed. A question from earlier on, which I'll tuck in at the end of the interview. We'd just and, and we might also think about this as the stones. It's a stoning event for mm-hmm. an unfaithful and wicked city. Yeah, yeah. Why is the altar, going back to verse 7, and just tucking this question in at the end, why is the altar given a speaking part there in verse 7? Yes, we perhaps could think about the way that the altar is connected with the blood of the saints earlier on, the blood of the saints placed at the altar, and the blood that speaks. You might think of the story of Abel, and the blood of Abel calling from the ground. The blood of the saints approves the vindication that they receive that's spoken of by the angel in charge of the waters. And so that connection would be my um, sense of that meaning. Why are altars so important? Because we've seen a lot of altars in the book of Revelation. Why are altars so important in the book of Revelation, do you think? Altars elsewhere in scripture are symbols of the land and its people. Uh, Think, for instance, of the way that altars have blood applied to them in different ways for different groups of people. The four horns of the altar can represent the four corners of the land. The four powers, um, think of the powers of the angels holding back the winds at the four corners. All of these are powerful symbolic images. And so the altar connected with um, those sorts of symbolisms and the symbolism of the land, the symbolism of the powers over it, the symbolisms of the people and the different levels of the people, and the symbolism of a realm of communion between God and his people. This is a place where things are offered that can be consumed by the Lord. Um, It's a table uh, which the Lord can share a meal with his people. In all of these ways, it seems then the altar has a natural significance within biblical symbolism that is developed and used within the book of Revelation. Yes, very good. Thank you very much. Yes, so we see the end of the old creation. And can we just, we've got a minute or two left. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, do we need just to briefly tell folk, if folk don't know, what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70 and why it's so significant? Why it's so significant? Yes. Reading the book of Revelation, I think the key thing to recognize is there are radical changes occurring in heaven. And those radical changes occurring in heaven are reflected in certain of the changes occurring on earth. We tend to view events on earth merely on a horizontal plane. We think about political powers and their competing, um, um, their competition and fights for dominance. And yet, within that vertical plane, what happens in Jerusalem and what happens in Israel is of peculiar significance, because that is the realm where there's the conduit between heaven and earth. That is the realm where God is present in the midst of his people. And so this change of things in heaven leads to a dramatic change on earth relative to that covenantal order not so much the political order, although it has huge implications for the political order too, but principally it's about what happens to um, the covenant order built around the old covenant temple. And so that temple is destroyed in AD 70, and the whole form of worship 
that surrounds it. That is the key change, which signifies change that has occurred as Christ has gone into heaven, has been established there at God's right hand, and as his people are brought up and vindicated with him. And so there's been a transformation, a transformation that has implications, it seems to me, not just for the order of the heavens, but also for what it means for every single person when they die. And think about the righteous dying prior to the advent of Christ and the ascension of Christ. It seems to me that they would have gone to Abraham's bosom. There would have been a, a sort of antechamber. They were waiting for ascension. Life after what it meant to die was not absolute cessation of existence, but a more shadowy existence. The life in the land was the place where things were really happening. To go to the realm of death was to go to the shadows, to go off stage, as it were, to be waiting in the wings, waiting to be, if possible, invited onto the stage again. But that would require a new act. And so the new act of God establishes this new reality in heaven reflected upon earth that has implications for everyone who um, is trusting in Christ. They're raised up to a new level of authority. Um, Christ's kingdom is established in a new way. The gospel goes out to all of the nations. The powers that once dominated the nations and held them in thrall and in darkness are now held back. And so there's a complete transformation. It's very easy to lose sight of this and to miss just how important what happens in the change from the old to new covenant era what how important what that represents is um for the whole world but also for each and every individual and so ad 70 represents the end of the overlap between the old covenant and new covenant orders and the complete establishment of the kingdom of christ in its definitive form yes so we really need to know our roman history and our jewish history from the first century ad don't we very important. Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States, thank you again so much, Alistair. Uh, we've been looking at the seven bowls in chapter 16, and uh, next time we'll be coming on to look at uh, a very dodgy dame indeed uh, in, in chapter 17. So thanks, thank you, Alistair, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you so much. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.